Victor Balvin, the Fiona Bass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Wednesday. This is weekly Monday appearance, except it has occurred in this case on a Wednesday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in this program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Love particular note this week. The positional power rankings are complete and available to the public. This is, of course, Fangraph's way to preview the season, in this particular case, the 2017 season. What do the positional power rankings reveal about the 2017 season? The long, baleful positional power rankings. Also this week, Jose Ramirez signed a contract extension guaranteeing him at least $26 million, which in the grand scheme of things is an impressive sum of money, but in the context of Major League Baseball is less impressive as a sum. Why, when all other manner of baseball salaries have been subject to regular inflation, does a contract extension for a certain kind of player, a certain kind of player, a certain class of player to which Jose Ramirez belongs, why have those contract extensions remained relatively static? There's another question I fling in Dave Cameron's direction. Also in this episode, and apropos of nothing, Dave Cameron announces three things he wants. I want to appear on the broadcast. I want to hand out the Silver Slugger Award. I want to call a press conference. Once again, there's Dave Cameron announcing three things he wants. More joyous non-sequiturs like that to follow. Uh, typically, this part of the introduction is reserved for a brief announcement. It's a brief announcement which I remind you, the listener, that Fangraphs memberships exist, both the classic edition of the Fangraphs membership and also the ad-free yearly membership, which, for a reasonable sum, allows readers to navigate Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads. And so I've done that to some degree. What I would also like to announce is that the beginning of this edition of the program begins in Medias Race, a conversation about bassinets. And about expensive bassinets, like Mark Trumbo, versus cardboard bassinets, which serve roughly the same function and fulfill roughly the same purpose, but are made of cardboard and are less expensive, but serve roughly the same purpose, which are Chris Carter. Mark Trumbo, expensive bassinet, Chris Carter, cardboard box for a baby to sleep in. Okay, let's get to the conversation that follows. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. options all right okay. here are the two options all right fine. so you only have two options one is you purchase essentially a cardboard box a br- but that has been branded and approved by the by the Finnish government you use that for seventy dollars it's a totally fine solution for the child but it's it's seventy dollars you're you're way overpaying for a cardboard box yeah but the alternative is to pay hundred fifty dollars for something that is does not represent a great improvement okay Okay. So despite the fact – and which maybe is made of, in theory, $150 worth of parts, but doesn't really do the job any better. What is this called when you overpay for one thing, but it's still essentially a dramatic underpayment for the solution overall, if I've made that clear? Uh So I think what you're trying to say is that you're making like the lesser of two bad decisions. That's I, that's part of it, yeah. Right. So, what's it called if you make a slightly more efficient decision of two inefficient decisions? Yeah. I don't know if there's a... I mean, there probably is some economic term for that. I just call that, like, 
The lesser of two evils. The lesser of two evils. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, on the one hand, though, because on the one hand, the more expensive bassinet would probably look nicer. You know what I mean? Like it has some added benefits. Right. But it's still $150. So hey, can, I, can I tell you what the $80 difference in price actually is? What's that? You're paying $80 to not have Health and Human Services show up at your door and take your kid away because you put him in a box. Because you put him in a box. Yeah. yeah. You're paying $80 insurance for not losing your child. That's the cost. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that would happen. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this are probably going to call Health and Human Services the day your kid is born. Just yeah, just a concern. <laughs> just like, I've listened to this guy's podcast. I don't think you should be raising a child. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, th- now something like this happens. I'm sure it must happen with with baseball players, right? Because because frequently the marginal upgrades for certain free agents are not particularly strong, right? Or like the marginal upgrade relative to how much money you have to spend. Essentially, essentially what you're buying is a brand name player. So um, are you talking about from the player side or from the team side? I guess from the team side in that particular right. case. Yeah. So like, right? I mean, there are probably instances where if you uh, say you have $20 million in your budget and you know that free agency is generally an inefficient way to spend money, but there's nowhere else for you to spend $20 million. You can't spend that in the draft anymore. You can't spend that in international free agency anymore. You don't have a young player who you want to assign to a long-term contract. Like, you're the Padres. You already signed Will Myers to an extension, and you probably overpaid for that just because you had to spend money somewhere. Uh, you know, might as well go sign Jared Weaver because you have to spend money. So... Well, so so for example, I, like I think that it's, it's possible if we say that um, like who 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 was a a brand name free agent who's received a bunch of a, bre- a brand name free agent reliever who's received a bunch of money recently. I feel well, like done. I think I think if you're like doing the brand name generic thing, the probably the easiest one from this winter is Mark Trumbo and Chris Carter, right? Because they're the same player. I mean, okay, not exactly yeah. the same, but they're very similar. And right. I think uh, what's in your designated hitter. Uh, right up, you noted that Trumbo got oh. ten, ten times as much money as Chris Carter. Yeah, that's right. I did do that. I, yeah, don't, I don't remember right. writing that at all, by the way. Those, yeah, well, are, those, well, you're, you're welcome for reading your post. <laughs> yeah, but those are, and I assume, because I only had to do 15 teams. Yeah. Those are a blur. Those are a blur. They, they just they spill out. But yes, that's true. Now I recall. <laughs> yes, they, that's true. Uh, I mean, I guess, except for the fact that Mark Trumbo ha- has played corner outfield. Yeah, but he can't do it. Right. No, no. Yeah. But, right. He can't do it, but he has played it. I mean, that's right. the difference. I mean, Trump, Trumbo's a better defensive player. Like, Trumbo's yeah. actually probably an above-average defensive first baseman. Chris Carter's not. So they're not okay, the right. same player. Right. But if you're signing them to be a DH, who cares about their defense? How much did Mike Mike or Ryan uh, – Mike Dunn, how much did he receive this? 19 this million over three years. Oh, 19 million over three years. Yeah. And how, how, how many wins do you think he'll record? Point two. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what what did Jorge De La Rosa sign for? One year and two million. He signed for two and, million, and it's a minor league contract, uh, so it's not even a guaranteed two million. So so we could say Mike Dunn uh, made ten ten times what uh, Jorge De La Rosa made, guaranteed money. Yeah, it's a, it's not a fair comparison because it's a three year deal versus a one year sure. deal, and you sure. yeah, have to factor in like you know what De La Rosa would make the next two years. But yeah, sure. Right. Okay. And and how many wins? I mean, I could tell you how many wins De La Rosa is projected for. He's projected to throw about eighty innings this year. Yeah, I, um, I'm a De La Rosa fan, and I think he could potentially be like a one win pitcher if he gets some starts and some yeah. relief appearances and uh, does decently well in both. Long, longer middle, really. Yeah. Jorge De La Rosa 
is a cardboard baby box. <laughs> and that's the, that's the point that I'm trying to make. And I, I think probably Chris Carter is a cardboard baby box, right? right. Yeah. These guys are baby you boxes. You don't want to be seen in public with these things. It's like, <laughs> this, this was my free agent signing. It's Jorge De La Rosa. You don't want to necessarily tell – it's not like something you really want to tell your owner. Uh, well, it's actually a tough – I guess it's a tough – because does the owner want you to get Chris Carter instead of Mark Trumbo? Or does he want Mark Trumbo because people know who Mark Trumbo is? I think it depends on the owner. Uh, mm-hmm. I think most owners are probably – it's probably an easy sell on this one, right? Like this is why Mark Trumbo only got paid by the team that had him last year and has an irrational owner. Mm-hmm. Um, is like the teams could be like, hey, look, we can sign a guy with 40 home runs last year. We can pay him $40 million or we can pay him $3 million. The owners will be like, let's pay him $3 million. Yeah. Do, are there are there any owners still around who kind of like the shiny thing? Who, who, Peter, who, Peter Angelos. Peter yeah, Angelos I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he paid Chris Davis 160 million last year when it's not clear that anyone else would have gone over like 80. Mm-hmm. And he paid Trumbo 37 million this year when it, it was not clear that anyone else was even interested in Trumbo, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, Peter Angelos is probably one of the ones who's like, I like this player. I think he's good. I don't care what my front office thinks. I'm doing this. Let me actually. Uh, uh, so this is uh, created. We'll, we'll return to to some other baby boxes <laughs> in a moment. Uh, <clears throat> the, you, we have talked about this in a couple of occasions, right? Where I think we, we talked about it most notably with regard to Scott Boros and uh, uh, Lerner, Lerner, the Lerners, Ted, Ted Lerner, yeah. yeah, yeah, and his ability to circumvent front offices and sign players immediately. I'm interested now. So obviously, there are cases in which. Uh, um, in that case, Nat's ownership is not listening to the analytics department or to the front office generally, right? Right. And I assume that there are other cases where ownership um, is uh, – they they have no inclination to, to circumvent uh, the front office because they say, well, you make the baseball decisions. And as long as they, they're uh, grounded in logic, then I support them more right. or less, yeah? yeah? Yeah. What do you think are a couple of the most and least – futile front offices in which to work, where you feel as though, regardless of the work you're doing, the arguments you, you put to the ownership, there's always going to be moves like that. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I would think that um, my guess would be the Cubs have basically carte blanche to do whatever they want. Like, Theo Epstein at this point has enough gravitas that he can just basically tell any owner, hey, look, you know, I've won a World Series in Boston, I've won a World Series in Chicago, I was recently just made more powerful than the Pope. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to trade this guy, and if you don't let me trade this guy, I'm quitting and I'm taking my entire staff with me, and good luck winning another World Series for the next 108 years. Like, I don't know exactly how the conversation with the Ricketts would go, but I think Theo could just pull rank and be like, I'm doing this, and the Ricketts would be like, okay, that's fine. Um, do, you, do you think it's? Do you think it, then it's roughly? It, it correlates pretty strongly with job security, or or the, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the possibility you'd be hired elsewhere in a minute. Yeah, I mean, I think right. If you're the president of baseball ops at this point, because like you know, if you're GM, you probably haven't ascended to this this point where you can just tell the owner to go screw himself. Um, but if you're like the president of baseball ops, you've got a long, distinguished history of. Um, you know, winning and, and you would clearly be a super hot free agent if you were fired and like you could basically go pick your organization. You, you have the ability to just basically tell the owner to stay out of baseball operations. No, wait, is this in part, uh, how would you, how would you characterize Alex Anthopoulos' decision from, was that a year ago now? Yeah. How would you characterize his decision in the context uh, of this way of looking at it? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that he, um, 
saw the ownership's decision or desire to bring in Mark Shapiro to work above him as uh, a a clear sign that he was never going to have this, this kind of carte blanche freedom to do whatever he wanted. He was always going to have to um, essentially get approval for all of his moves, and he was not interested in doing that. So where did where did Alex Anthopoulos, where is he ending up now? He's, uh, he works for the Dodgers because they have money, and they can hire like 16 former GMs to just do things. Right. So that's so he's working. Uh, everyone wins. Okay, good job, Alex Anthopoulos. And then, what about uh, organization or organizations in which uh, one might feel like it, like his work or his or her work is most futile? Uh, maybe the Marlins. I mean, I would yeah. think like Jeffrey Loria has um, uh, basically shown that like you know he's. Not a good baseball owner. Uh, he's good at enriching himself, but if you're like spending a lot of time being like, how do I get the Marlins to win? Uh, your work is probably not being um, respected or utilized uh, in in a significant way. Like maybe you can emphasize like this is the guy we're going to use the Rule Five pick on, or this is you know some minor league free agent we're going to sign. But you're the Marlins. You're you're not going to be allowed to uh, you know build a sustainable winner long term. Uh, Lori is going to strip mine your team and sell it for parts. And yet, actually, the, I mean, the Marlins are projected for something like a 500 record. They're not right. the worst team in the major. No, yeah, I mean, Lori is not trying to run the worst team in baseball. I mean, he did that for a while. Now yeah. he got yelled at. He doesn't want to do that anymore. <clears throat> so now he's trying to run a just a good enough team to make money uh, and not get yelled at. Is there if if that while he waits for the president to appoint him as you know ambassador to France? If that team had a like another front office, if they had like, you know, like, uh, well, really any team's front office, I guess. I, mean, I don't know. I just think in Milwaukee, like if Milwaukee's front office were there, what, do you think that that team would be, would, would, would it really develop a fan base? Maybe, but I think like you can look at like say Milwaukee's front office or one of these kind of teams that's like doing interesting things and um, be like, why were they hired, right? So at, at some point, ownership decided. This is the plan. This is the goal, and this is the way we're going to try and get there. Um, I don't. I don't see a scenario in which Jeffrey Loria would ever say, "How do I make this team into a long-term sustainable winner where I can invest in this team?" And like his calculation is, "How do I personally profit from this business that I own?" Which is fine, I guess, because it's a business that he owns. Right. Um, but his calculation is not the same as the Milwaukee ownership's calculation. And so I don't see like Jeffrey Loria ever saying, let's go get a bunch of guys, give them a bunch of power, enable them to do things that will build us into a long-term winner, uh, because that's expensive and will reduce his profit margin. It, do, it does seem like, a, I mean, we've we've discussed this before. I guess the one point I'll make now about it, regarding like the, the Loria ownership situation and the general contempt that I suppose his – the, the Marlins fans have from specifically and people in general baseball have uh, from the fan side at least have for him is it seems like a curious choice I, I assume if you're wealthy and of course I don't know but I assume if you're wealthy there are a number of opportunities for investment yeah right for sure and many of them uh, you are generally no one will uh, will give you a problem for making a profit right right yep Whereas, like, baseball, and we discussed it before, there's a sort of uh, stewardship that occurs alongside of it where you are not simply dealing with profits, although that's obviously a huge attraction for it uh, to captains of industry 
But then you are also essentially there's like you know you are uh, representing community. There's a lot of public relations that goes alongside of it. You're essentially at some level you're it's your responsibility to manage the brand, and, and so it seems like if the if the sole motive were profit, that baseball would not necessarily be that baseball ownership would not necessarily be a racket into which one would enter. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on when, when we're talking about entering and the motivation. So, like, one of the main reasons, especially before Major League Baseball Advanced Media took off and became this behemoth, and now all the owners got this huge windfall that no one was really expecting. Um, but, like, before that, one of the main reasons to buy a baseball team is it was a tax shelter. So you would see people buy teams for five years, and because of the way the tax laws were written, um, it allowed them to, like, claim you know, significant parts of their income or parts of their revenues is, you know, tax deduction. And then after five years, they'd be like, okay, I've used my tax deduction. Who wants to do this next? And every, like, because the ownership basically would get a five-year window, there was always some demand for someone who wanted to use baseball teams as a tax shelter, and so you had pretty frequent turnovers. I think that's changed. I think some of that got adjusted, and we don't see that quite as frequently anymore. But that was one of the reasons to buy a team was not necessarily for the, um, you know, I'm just making a lot of money because it's like I already have a lot of money and I need to hide it from the IRS. Uh, and then I think there's also just the um, ego issue, right? Like if you want to be on TV, one of the easiest ways to be on TV if you're a super rich person is to own a sports team because oh, yeah. because then oftentimes you will own the TV network that shows the games and you're like, I want to appear on the broadcast or I want to hand out the Silver Slugger Award or you know, I want to call a press conference or whatever, and then you can become a public figure. And if you, I mean, I don't, I don't I'm guessing this wasn't like Jeffrey Loria's long-term plan, but it's been widely reported that he's going to be named after he sells the team, the ambassador to France. Like maybe that doesn't happen if he was investing in, you know, hedge funds. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. So there's, there's some sort of uh, notoriety. Right. That. You're basically buying fame. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess it's. Uh... Seems evil to me, but that's fair <laughs> enough. Um, uh, <clears throat> all right. Well, okay, that was a, that was a detour. We returned to some baby boxes before. Oh, yeah, wait, oh, we were talking about futility in front offices. We checked that off. You think Marlins is one of the worst? Probably Cubs. Your work is the best. Um, okay, that's fine. That was a um, well. That was a long and winding road, wasn't it? But um, yeah. Can I give you a little more baby stuff advice? Yeah. Don't buy new. This is like the thing that oh, I... Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah so, I got it. Okay, all right. Like I the, got it. No, no, if I you know. go to the store and you're like, that, ah, this thing's $300, and you go on Craigslist and like the same thing, it's like $50. Yeah, I know. And uh, it's a weird market, right? Because at some point, people, <laughs> because of biology, people stop <laughs> having children. Right. And I assume when you have a six-month-old child, items that are made for a six-month-old child are, are very much in demand for you. Right. But when you have a five-year-old child, if you still have items that are made for a six-month-old child, I can imagine not wanting anything less than those. You want them out of your life is my point. Right, yeah. There's always a supply of people who are like, well, my kid's grown. I don't need this thing anymore. Yeah. I actually think, like, it would be an interesting business. I don't know how well you could do it because some people are germaphobes and would not want the idea of, like, using other people's things. But I think if you had, like, a Netflix for child stuff to where you just signed up to like some subscription service that was like I'm gonna have a kid and my kid's gonna grow at a linear predictable rate and like this company just like sent you stuff that like for the first month you need small diapers and rattles and whatever and then six months from now you need 
a baby Bjorn and like all these things and like just predictable just sent you stuff and you didn't have to like go acquire this and when you were done you sent it back and they cleaned it they sent it to someone else like that would actually probably do pretty well. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that a very one aspect of that is the I mean, diaper services have existed before. I think they're actually yeah. less common than they used to be. But that's yeah. the thing where like you're giving something back you don't have to deal with anymore. Right. Um, the, the but problem not, with diaper, not a, the, the problem with diaper services means that you don't just get to throw the diaper away. Which... Yeah, you have to give it back. Yeah. Also, they they tend to be covered in. They're gross. Yeah. Human. My my idea was uh, not poop related items. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, all right. Fair enough. Let me ask you a question about extensions. Okay. Uh, Dave Cameron, Jose Ramirez just signed one for somewhere yeah. in the twenty million dollar range. Twenty six million. Twenty six million. I think last week maybe. Uh, White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson signed one in the twenty something million yeah, dollars. Twenty five million. Now. Similar contracts, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to some degree, yes. Anderson, I think, only has what, like half a year of service time or something. Oh, like, that's right. That's the unique thing about yeah. that. So Anderson's deal, I think, actually covers less free agent years, mm-hmm. and he was further from free agency. So like Anderson did better than Ramirez, which is interesting to think about considering what what they've done in their big league careers. Right. Uh, but you make this point uh, in, a, in a piece you wrote for today about Jose Ramirez, is that um, his deal, which covers, I think, was it was it two or three free agent years? Three. Right. His deal is one, uh, we've seen a number of these, contracts for young players who have both, A, uh, recorded some sort of uh, promising season, but also B, have some maybe traits that do not guarantee or do not point to the necessarily the, the, uh, the there's some suspicion about whether those types of seasons will continue. Yeah. Right. Jose Ramirez, of course, because he basically wasn't a prospect. Yeah. Um, never really hit for power. Um, he he did the latter of those things this year, which in addition to making lots of contact and playing infield made him quite valuable. Right. But it's not clear that the power will stick around because he's yeah. never really considered that. You talked about – I think you discussed um, Cameron Mabin a few years ago as an example of this. Yeah, Adam Eaton. Right, Adam Eaton, right. Ben Zobra is the most famous example. Right. And now the, the the problem you note with these contracts is that – and I think the Zobrist one is sort of the – represents the genesis of this type of deal. Yeah. I mean like more, long-term, more long-term deals for like your superstar players have been around for a long time. But I think after kind of the people saw what the Rays did with Zobrist, they were like, oh, yeah, maybe we should think about locking up like our mid-level players too and hope they become superstars and then we get them really cheap. Now the thing is the deal that Ramirez has signed, as you note, resembles in terms of uh, the terms, years and dollars – Kind of resembles similar deals that have existed since the early part of the yeah. of the 2010s. Like the for the last seven years, this kind of player has signed for roughly twenty to thirty million dollars, and Ramirez signed right in the middle of that. And you know, like everything else in baseball costs more than it did seven years ago, except for this. Now, so on the one hand, you say, well, someone is probably getting the short end of the stick here, right? Yeah, right. And it's uh, probably young players, right? It's, it's the guy getting $26 million, which is weird to say, considering he had a $50,000 signing bonus, and, like, you know, this is his first real big payday. Right. So th- that's the problem, is that as a population, right, young players are not really incentivized to accept these. But on an indiv- but Jose Ramirez does no. not care about the population of young players. Exactly, yeah. Because he, 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 he might be the exception to the rule. He does not perform well, does not make it to free agency with any sort of cachet, right. and ends up 
you know, having made a decent amount of money, but nowhere near $26 million. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy for, um, you know, someone to look at, like, Alan Craig, right, who's an example of a player, or Jonathan Singleton is probably the more famous example. Jonathan Singleton signed for $10 million, like, very early in his major league career, and Jonathan Singleton might not have a major league career now. So now it's very easy to be like, Jonathan Singleton made a good choice for himself. He's got $10 million, and he wouldn't have gotten $10 million had he bet on himself. Um, and so, therefore, any player in that scenario who... Um, has some doubt about his future major league abilities and earnings. Uh, so would say, look, you know, I could go the Jonathan Singleton route, therefore I should just take whatever is given to me. And that's an easy argument to make, right, when $10 million is on the table. Uh, and you're like, you know, I don't need more than this for the rest of my life. I can just, you know, take my $5 million or whatever take-home pays after taxes and agent fees and all that and stick it in the bank and live off the interest and I'm good. And, you know, now I don't ever have to work again. Um, so it, it can be a compelling argument to make for for a player, especially one who grew up with modest means and, you know, certainly um, has family that he might want to support and put into a different lifestyle than they're currently in. Um, but if everyone kind of makes that this is in the best interest for me personally decision, um, it's, a, it's a little bit of the... Um, uh, the name of the theory is escaping me, but basically the, oh, the prisoner's dilemma, right? Where, like, individually, every person might be incentivized to, like, rat on their fellow thief, but if everybody chose not to, then they are all better off in general. And so, we have a little bit of a prisoner's dilemma here where if all these, you know, pre-arm players could unilaterally collude and, ex- and, can, and no one sign any of these deals, then everyone would be better off. Uh, they would have to agree to, like, you know, the guys who end up getting paid would then split the money with the generals and singletons. But, like, uh, generally, these players would be better off. But because each person's kind of making the decision for themselves, uh, the the players end up at a worse position. So it is interesting. You, you could use the word collude, and, of course, in some context, even specifically in the context between owners and players, collusion uh, is a uh, – well, this is an illegal act, right? Yeah. Um, However, if it's a group of people, I guess, um, who are essentially fighting for f- – there's a sort of uh, – f- there's a, essentially they're they, – on the one hand, we have collusion. On the other hand, there is a uh, – there is united resistance. Um, or I mean, that's – I guess a strike is a form of collusion too, isn't it? Yeah, but it's – right. People getting together to say, let's do this together. Uh, collusion doesn't have to be illegal. Like, you know, that's you, right, and your, yeah. you and your wife can collude to buy a box to stick your kid in. <laughs> no, we we will not. Well, we'll see. You if, we'll see. Depends how good my case is. Hmm. Yeah, still thinking about that. Trying to make a case. Trying to make a case. All right. Uh, so right. So the collusion occurs. But now, so what are the steps for that for that to happen? I mean, I think this would have to be essentially organized at the players' association level. And from my from my perspective, I still think that what's probably um, I mean not necessarily going to happen, but would would change the dynamics of the market where Jose Ramirez wouldn't just be like, well, this is this is the offer I have on the table. I don't have any other offers. Would be to have some kind of secondary marketplace for quality young baseball players to get guaranteed money in exchange for a cut of their future earnings. So, like, there's already companies like this that exist. Fantex, I think, is probably the most talked about one that's gotten the most publicity. I think they did a deal with... Uh, Andrew Heaney, uh, a couple of years ago, where they gave him three and a half million dollars in exchange for 
I don't know, 10 or 20 or 30 percent, some significant portion of his future earnings from like his salary and marketing and all these things. Um, so Andrew Heaney basically sold a cut of himself to this company, and if he makes whatever, you know, $50 million long term, then he'll come out in the red, and if he makes less than that, he'll come out ahead. Um, so he essentially sold some of his risk to a non-baseball entity, and I think if there was some kind of well-established market, uh, if Fantex became a huge thing, or if the Players Association like basically built their own version of this, that they can say, hey, look, don't listen to the Cleveland Indians. They're giving you $25 million, but they're taking away the possibility of you making $75 million. We'll give you, you know, maybe $10 million. We're going to give you less, but we're not going to, you know, cut your earnings off at the knees in nearly the same way. And so there would be basically a, a competitor in the market for the teams. And I think right now, because there's no competition for the teams, they can basically go to a guy like Jose Ramirez and kind of take advantage of that intrinsic, well, I've never really gotten paid, I want some security, um, and pay him less than what a uh, competitive offer would get them to. Because I think, like, you know, Jose Ramirez at $35 million, still a pretty good deal for the Indians, right? Like, or $40 million. Like, they're still saving money long term, but they don't have to offer 35 or $40 million because there's no other way for Jose Ramirez to go get that guarantee right now. Right. And as you as you point out, while there are exceptions, in, like Jonathan Singleton, I think, is the most notable one to which you point, teams would sign these contracts all day, right? Oh, yeah. Teams love these deals. Right. Yeah. Because, the, because when – if a player – even approximates his established levels up to that point, the sort that would earn him a contract uh, of this level, then he's going to far exceed um, whatever whatever price the team is going to have to pay. Yeah, I mean, think about, like, Adam Eaton, right? So, like, Adam Eaton signed his deal a couple of years ago, and so now he's got five years left on his extension, and I think he's going to make $40 million or something like that. And that's assuming the options are picked up, which they probably will be unless he gets hurt because he's turned into a pretty good player and the prices are really cheap. So let's say over the next five years, Adam Eaton's going to make $40 million or something like that, and he's made, like I don't know, three or four million so far. Um, if Adam Eaton was an arbitration-eligible player coming off this really good season that he just had, and then you know he reached free agency, I think, in two more years... Adam Eaton would be making twenty plus million dollars a year by the end of that deal, and would probably make you know seventy or eighty million dollars during the life of this contract. So he left a significant amount of money on his on the table. But at the time, Adam Eaton didn't know he was going to become this kind of player, and he couldn't have you know forecasted that like he was going to be able to stay healthy, and uh, he'd had injury problems. Like there were all kinds of reasons for Adam Eaton to think like, wow, forty million dollars was great. Uh, but, you know, and that wasn't even guaranteed. I think the guaranteed was twenty five, and we're talking about with the options picked up. Uh, but in the end, he's going to end up probably costing himself forty or fifty million dollars. It does. It takes a lot of Jonathan Singleton to make up for one Adam Eaton because the savings are so much of a higher magnitude when the player hits than the losses are when they don't. Right. Uh, the last thing about which I'll ask you, and there's no. It's so. It it's so large, giant, and unseemly that I did. I have not necessarily. I don't know what to say, but we did those power rankings, Cameron. Yeah, we did the positional power rankings. They're popular. Yeah, right. And if anyone has any interest in them, I suppose just read them. Uh, that's right. the, really the only advice. There's a lot of content. I will say, by the time you post this podcast, uh, there will probably be a post up or going up shortly, depending yeah. on when you put the podcast up, about kind of reviewing the overall rankings. If you don't want to read the 75 million words we published in each position, we are going to provide kind of like an overview of like. You know, here are the teams like that did really well, and here's the glaring flaws, and then here's the really sad Padres. 
Oh, yeah, the budget. You know, Travis Sotrick did make uh, one interesting point um, in his... Just one. That's all he ever makes. One interesting point. Well, of of the many he made, <laughs> one sticks out, and that's uh, his point about the starting pitcher depth chart. Yeah. Is that of all the posts that we publish in the depth chart series, that's the one that probably correlates most strongly to um, to success in the season just because um, relative to all these positions, starting pitching is just makes up the biggest part of winning. I mean, well, in all the other positions, we're talking about like, you know, one-ninth of the lineup or something. Well, right, like starting right. pitchers are like 75% of the innings or 60% of the innings or whatever. Like, it's a, it's a much larger... Pop portion of the population of run prevention than, you know, how is your second baseman going to do this year? Well, eh, who cares? Right, right. Okay, that's it. That's all I have to say about that. Okay. I also have to drive my grandfather to his accountant. So. All right, that sounds like a fun thing to do. Yeah, that's it. Well, thank you for, I guess, beginning to tell me about baby items. Uh, I'm excited to spend the next four months lecturing you on how to not raise a child. Alright, well wait, why don't you lecture me for a second after we get off, but in the meantime thank you Dave Cameron. You're welcome. You fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. I will say that has been Dave Cameron. He is the managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>